The Magic Hour is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Andy, did you know the ticket prices drop right before the game starts? And because GameTime tracks prices in real time uh, from thousands of trusted sellers, they're able to show you the best last-minute deals with prices up to 60% off. Well, that's because at that point, Brian, they are desperate to get you into the building. And what you need to do is capitalize on the fact that they're desperate. That's how you, you stick it back to the man because usually the man's the one that's winning. That's right. And it's about time that we pulled one over on the man. And you can do that in a lot of different ways, not just with the discount, Andy, but also with the two-tap checkout system where it's just like one tap, you got your, you're viewing the stuff and another tap, you're out of there. You've got your tickets and you have the rest of the day to mock people who paid full price. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? You should mock those people because they're fools. Fools, Andy, each and every one of them. The GameTime app is simple, quick and easy to navigate. So download the GameTime app in the Google Play or App Store and score last-minute deals on tickets up to 60% off. Welcome back to the Magic Hour. Brian Kamenetsky, Andy Kamenetsky here on The Athletic and The Forum Club. That's the name of our channel. The name of our show is The Magic Hour, and this is like the fourth or fifth one that we've done. Um, so we appreciate everybody subscribing and rating us and and uh, reviewing us on wherever you get your, your podcast. It's been a lot of fun to do so far. Andy, how you doing? Doing well, man. Uh, doing well, and so are the Lakers. 11-2. and two. The Lakers are killing it. We are on the heels of a 122-101 win over the Hawks at Staples Center that, frankly, didn't even feel that close. No, the Lakers got out to, I believe, it was a 31-9 to lead. At that point, Atlanta had to pull Matt Ryan. They had to abandon the run. It was just, it didn't work out. No, it was all. crazy. I mean, like Kobe Bryant was in the building, which caused a stir in and it was of a itself. Lot of, it was weird, by the way. Like, I... Did you find some of the, like the post game fawning? I was sort of catching up on that over the presence of Kobe to be a little weird. Like the fawning by who? Well, like Frank Vogel said, he got chills that Kobe was there, and there was just there was a lot of like, like it's not that long ago Kobe was like on the court with these guys, right? I mean, it, it's nice that he shows up, and it's well. Rare. I mean, here's the thing though: it's been a while since Kobe was in attendance of a Laker team that actually seemed good. That's true, and that there was actually a buzz in the building that was about more than just Kobe being in the building. Mm -hmm. So, in that sense, I can see a sincerity in what Frank's, Frank Vogel's talking about with feeling chills of you know having a Laker icon like watching back when them. it matters, and that's right. probably what he's talking about. Like you know, and there's a bit he, of you, you know, do want to show out for Kobe, right? Yeah. Uh, oh, I think every, I mean, LeBron was showing out for Kobe. They had a few, you know, courtside exchanges and high fives. And I mean, the, the building was, those fans were legitimately excited to have Kobe there. He was there with um, at, at least one of his daughters. It was, I, I, I forget John, I believe. I forget, but it was, I, it seemed almost like a. The one that's like an incredible basketball player function, in their right, own right, apparently. Like a team function or a birthday function, whatever it was, they were there and, and having a good time or whatever. But I mean, it was it was it was interesting to see him, you know, kind of exchange, you know, hugs with Dwight. And I was like, there is a certain kind of 
giving Kobe giving Dwight like that kind of physical stamp of approval, I suspect they've probably gotten along fine in the rare times they've seen each other since he left L.A. I mean, it sounds like uh, according to Dwight and look, Dwight was very conscious after the game about not giving any type of quote that could somehow be linked back to the feud that he he's had. Been, he's been, which he's been very careful of all but year. But if you take Dwight at his word, they've barely seen each other outside of an on-court setting when Kobe was playing since Co- since Dwight left the Lakers. Yeah, I think that's and I think that's probably right. And it's I, mean, I doubt they run in the same circles. It I doesn't mean. seem that way. <laughs> it is strange to note though that Dwight is one of the only teammates who ever went to Kobe's house. That, oh. <laughs> that was crazy. We when Kobe tore his Achilles, um Dwight and Jody Meeks Jody Meeks of all people went down to uh, Newport to go visit Kobe and they were the first teammates not just of that team, to but like ever. Kobe. Yeah, because this this gets me just to finish the backstory here. The, the most shocking thing that I have ever heard come out of an athlete's mouth in terms of a locker room team dynamic, specifically with Kobe, right? With, you with and Kobe, I, co- right? Who we, we covered, covered for a long time, right? We covered the second half of Kobe's career for people who aren't familiar. And so we're talking to Derek Fisher when he after his return to the Lakers um, with the, the Thunder, I think. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, whatever it was, when he finally came back to the Lakers, he we were talking about, you know, because he was Kobe's BFF. Like, they had charm bracelets and each wore a locket with a picture of the other one inside of it. Like, he Fish, by reputationally, was the closest thing that Kobe had to a really close friend on the team. I think that's fair to say. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, he he had pretty good relationships, I think, with Lamar Odom and Robert Turioff and Trevor Fisher was by far. In I mean, all the time that they had played together, Fish revealed that he had never been to Kobe's house, like ever, not one time. And like, I, I get it. The Fish lived way out in in the valley somewhere, and Kobe was in Orange County. And it's a it is a long drive. I mean, relationships break up in L.A. over where people live. There's no question. But like, like one barbecue, one birthday party, one like Kobe could have loaned out the Mamba chopper. I mean, just exactly. to make this happen once. So to that was it was shocking. Yeah, oh no! They, like all of sur- the surrounding media, our jaws. It stopped the conversation, dropped. and then we all went into wait what? Um, so that be when in, in, so when we when you do produce the photograph of Dwight Howard and Jody Meeks, like sort of Zelig like, just sort of there, but like Dwight Howard being like the headliner first person to visit. Kobe it was pretty himself. ironic. It was weird, uh, but anyway. So like, but the Lakers are eleven and two. We I, I wrote last week at the Athletic about. Uh, the need to capitalize on this soft part of the schedule, and and they are like sort of post Phoenix game, uh, Sacramento, and you got Atlanta. And now they get two games against Oklahoma City, and uh, the road trip includes a slumping San Antonio team. Uh, so there's a lot of opportunity on this trip to to continue to run up the record. They've done real well, and there's no indication that it's going to slow down. LeBron is still playing out of his mind. Other guys are kind of rounding. Kuzma's really looks like he's rounding into form, at least offensively. Uh, I, there's, there's really nothing to pick on about this team. Well, especially, too, you take a look at their 11-2, and two, which in and of itself is a really good record. But their two losses are both acceptable losses. You know, the opening day against a Clipper team that had more continuity in terms of what was retained from the offseason. Right, preseason championship. Right. And, and the, Laker, the Lakers had more moving pieces and, you know, they had the time that was in a lot of ways wasted going back and forth to China. And then they played a Raptors team that, yes, didn't have 
uh, Kyle Lowry and Serge Ibaka. And, and maybe on paper, the Lakers should win that game. But at the same time, if you look at the way the Raptors have played during this stretch, you know, they were good with those guys there. They've been pretty good without them. So They're a good team. They're, I mean, that's, that's not that a not, bad it's not losing. loss. You lose to the Hawks at home, that's a bad loss. You lose to the Raptors at home, that is an acceptable loss. You know, should the Lakers win that game? Yeah. They, it's not Lakers, a bad loss. But the Lakers should win almost every game that they play. They're better than... 90% of the league. So, but they're not going to win 90% of their games. So that's just not how the world works. Uh, but it, it, you know, the, the context of it in part, because there's not a lot to complain about right now, a lot of the context, especially when the Kings were in town on, on Friday centered around what's different about this team. And I, I think there are two things that you can look at the roster. Obviously Andy is, is very different. Um, and the coaching staff is different. Um, I asked LeBron Friday morning at shoot around, about that. And no surprise, he basically thought I was walking him into a trap. He turned into the guy from Return of the Jedi um, with the big fish eyes. Admiral Akbar. <laughs> yes, he became Admiral Akbar. And and I even said, like, look, I, I understand I'm not trying to the question needed to be asked. Like, how is this coaching staff different than last year? It's what you'd say though if you were trying. It is true. <laughs> I mean, if, if you were trying right. to lure as we've discussed, Andy, the 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 first sign of being an alcoholic is denial. It's also the first sign of not being an alcoholic. Yeah, you, I mean, if you truly are, it. right? I mean, it's you're in it. You're in a bind there. I mean, like if denial is the is the uh, is, is the proof. But you know, I asked, him, and he said, "Look, it's just a different year." And re- kind of refused to get into it after the game. He talked about. Again, not singling out Luke Walton. He said at that shoot around that you know, Luke did as good of a job as could be expected under the circumstances. Okay. After the game, he praised Frank Vogel and the staff and talked about you know the discipline that they've put in and all that stuff. Again, without singling out Walton and his staff. And Luke's done a decent job in Sacramento after a really bad start. I think they're five and seven now, lost their first five, so they played well since. When you look at it though, Andy, how much do you attribute the the start that they've had and the direction that they're going to the coaching and the change in staff and the, the staff broadly, not just Frank Vogel, but the entire coaching infrastructure that they've got there. Yeah. I mean, Frank Vogel is a more accomplished NBA coach. I mean, even if you want to say that he is, you know, whether or not you think he's better than Luke, you know, I mean, you could say that the same sample size makes it harder to totally evaluate Luke, but Frank Vogel is more accomplished. He's been yes, to two Eastern no Conference question. finals. Luke's never had a winning season. But Frank Vogel was also unsuccessful in Orlando, which speaks to the roster discrepancies in Indiana, where he went to two Eastern Conference finals, and Orlando, when he couldn't have a 500 record, and why those discrepancies matters. And, and Frank Vogel's working right now with two top five players and a more experienced roster. And, and I'm not saying that to make excuses for Luke, but that context yeah, I'm not matters. sure. Right. I'm not sure their record would be significantly different if Walton was still the coach. And, you know, it's worth noting that when Luke Walton was first hired by the Lakers, he was hired to work with a young uh, core that the Lakers, if nothing else, faked that they had enthusiasm about. Wee! And <laughs> I think that... They got, but they, they got better. Yes. That, that team in the second year under Luke gained nine wins. That's significant, particularly when they did not have one all-star caliber player on the team. And then the third year, LeBron arrived and everything changed. And, you know, the 
Everything from the buy-in that Luke got from his team, the buy-in that was very obviously not there, certainly from Magic, and I would say probably not Frank Vogel, I mean, uh, not not Rob Palenka, all of that stuff matters. What I think is a definite difference in terms of uh, it's better with Frank Vogel's the staff. I mean, no matter oh, yeah. what, no matter what you think of Vogel versus Walton individually, no, Luke's Vogel's, big shortcoming was, was Vogel's that staff, staff runs circles around Luke. He needed better people around. I mean, what I think is just you know we're you know we're in LA and we see this a lot. Like some of this is is similar to what you see in the dynamic at USC playing out right now. It's it almost doesn't matter at this point if Clay Helton is a good coach or a bad coach. It just doesn't matter. He is a coach that needs to be replaced. And the context of Walton had reached a place where you could not bring him back this year. It didn't matter if he was good or no, bad. I spent a lot of year. uh spent a lot of ink for the athletic writing articles about Luke Walton now has to go because he can't be retained. But yeah, you're right. I mean, just at some point when you when you when you have this setup you and situation where the coach's um future is constantly in doubt. You can't operate that way, and you can't return. You can't let that coach walk back into a situation where a two games, and we're, we're you know there's threat of that with Vogel anyway, just because like you say who's on the staff and the Jason Kidd thing and all that other stuff. But you know with really with somebody like Luke Walton to the point that if if LeBron inherited Frank Vogel and they had the season that they had last year, they might have had to come up with somebody else to be the coach this year. I think it's less about Walton and less about Vogel as it is. Really about LeBron I, I and the buy-in say, from him. The, that buy-in that LeBron has with Frank Vogel, whether because he truly respects Frank Vogel or he's indifferent towards him, but you know doesn't want to be seen as you know shit cannon two guys. Like you know Le- LeBron, as I've written many times, talked about on podcasts on air at ESPN LA seven. Just sometimes standing on the street corner, anybody who will listen. LeBron has skin in the game right now with the Lakers that he did not have last year. And he's seems like he is satisfied with Frank Vogel, maybe even legitimately pleased. But either way, he's got more of a motivation and an onus to make it work this year mm-hmm. that he didn't have last year with Luke. And, and it was very obvious that even if LeBron didn't hate Luke Walton as a coach, he wasn't going to. Well, no. he wasn't going to go to the mattresses for the guy. No. I mean that was for sure. And, and that's when, why. And that's and why then when you have Magic and and you know Magic definitely Palinka probably looking to replace Luke anyway. The situation just isn't going to work. And that's why Luke, when it got to the end of the year, didn't really fight for his job. He's like, I got this one lined up. Let just let me go. It's better for everyone. Um. Yeah. Well, how would you describe the, the reception for Luke when he was announced on Friday? It's kind of mixed. There's you know some cheers, but it's like I think people think fun. But like it, it, but it's funny too. Like the the winning changes a lot. People are, they're finally playing defense. Well, yeah, they got Anthony Davis and a bunch of dudes who at least understand concepts better. For reasons that I'm still not entirely sure how it worked. Those teams in the last couple of years they were bad offensively. But defensively, they were actually pretty good. They like were he, the last few years, and, and I even include this year because you and I both had questions about the roster defensively heading into the year. The last few years, the Lakers have been better defensively than they seem like they'd be on paper. Correct. And in 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 on paper, you could say Anthony Davis. Um, although when you add Dwight Howard, that makes a difference. Like Anthony Especially Davis, this Dwight, Dwight Howard, Howard, this one, right? Um, you know, and, and the guy was like, "Oh, that should be depending on how engaged LeBron is." That's 
that's like a top 15 defense or something and they're a top 10 defense and they've made it the top defense. Last couple of years, it was like, good God, they've been, you know, if they could get in the middle of the pack, there'd be a great achievement. And they did, uh, especially until everybody got hurt. Where I think this staff is better both is both in the trust and buy-in from the stars. And I just think they're set up better for a veteran team than Luke and his staff would have been. Luke would have had to completely revamp his staff to which he needed to do anyway. Which he needed to do anyway, but in a different way for different reasons. He needed he needed to revamp his staff because he needed more help. He needed yeah. more experience. I help. mean, look, no his, his strength. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but like Luke's strength as a coach is interpersonal relationships. It's managing people. That's it's not the you, you said before, Clay Helton. Yeah, those are Clay Helton's strengths as a coach for USC, and his players to a man love him, and he is loyal to the you know the staff that he had. To a fault, and frankly, in a way that's put him in a position that he's going to end up getting fired yes. at the end of this year because he really, I think, didn't demand enough of his staff in terms of who he would hire and then what he asked of them once they were on his staff. And I think the same thing was going on with Luke. And you look at this year, Jason Kidd, you know, as a as a head coach, has had very mixed reviews. But the bottom line is, he's done it twice. He's also a Hall of Fame caliber championship player that everybody respects. Lionel Hollins is an NBA lifer who I believe also won a ring as a player. Like he's been around forever. Everybody respects Lionel Hollins and he's considered great as a defensive coach. Phil Handy. I was about to say, Phil Handy was a really big addition. He was a really smart, low key ad. He's really respected around the league. And this is important, really respected by LeBron. Correct. I mean, like this staff just has more credibility than Luke's did last year. And, And that matters when you're looking to get especially now a buy-in of so many more veterans. Right. It's it, it, sports we we tend to boil things down so often to this guy's better than that guy. This guy, you know, you know, he's this and 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 more so this guy's better which makes him great and the other guy terrible. Like, you know, it, it it's it's a binary argument similar to the weird one we like we people would have you could either be a Kuzma guy or an Ingram guy. You couldn't be both. It was hard to be both. Um, and because of it, I found myself defending Ingram more because I thought he was really good and spending more time pointing out flaws in Kuzma, which I thought, which I, I kind of be like, you know, Andy, like he doesn't deserve the status that he's getting because he hasn't done those things yet with any kind of consistency. And meanwhile, we tend to ignore the good stuff that Ingram does because the expectations are different. The context is totally different. I think that's what we're getting here. Vogel is good at certain things. That Luke wasn't. Luke is, I think, good at other. They're in, I think, the same general range of NBA coaches. Give them good players, you'll probably get good results. Give them weak players, you'll get mixed results. Like you said, you pointed to Vogel's time in Orlando when he had a a roster that was more similar to what Luke worked with in LA. He wasn't very good. Well, there. as we're also seeing this year, uh, that roster is a problem. Like nobody can make what's been going on in Orlando right. for like the last five or six years work. Right, and, no and, matter who you bring. And in. you know, I, I don't think there was a coach on the planet that could have made the Lakers good last year once everybody started getting hurt. Um, you know, at Christmas. You know, go after Christmas when LeBron gets hurt and then other guys get hurt and Lonzo goes down and all these other things. That's not a coaching thing at that point. And the roster, which had already had its own problems, just got that much worse when you start taking away players. You know, I think most coaches could take this team and make them pretty good. I think what's where we really see the difference is down the stretch, in the playoffs, the adjustments that happen. I, I think that 
one of the things that you can point to Vogel that I think he's done a great job with is coming out in third quarters and making changes. He's done it a few times with the guard rotation to add a second ball handler on nights when LeBron, this kind of dovetails nicely into the next sort of the next topic um, on nights where LeBron has had too much to do sitting down, whether it's Avery Bradley, Contavious Caldwell Pope for the games that, that Bradley uh, was sitting, whatever it is and letting Alex Caruso play that those are good adjustments going to that game where he went small with AD to bring Rudy Gobert away from the basket. Those are good in-game, flexible adjustments that that I think work. And so they've done a good job with both, I think, managing the players and also, you know, little tweaks inside games. But they're also working with two of the five best players in the NBA. That That is a big, big foundational difference. That, that's going to make any coach, I don't want to say better than they really are because that may not be fair to them, but it's going to give them a hefty advantage that makes, uh, by comparison, not working I mean, what with them much What would their record be if you and I were the staff? And wisely, like we're the whole staff, very wisely you and I say, we do the, we do the Bernie Baker staff interim head coaching thing. We say, you guys, you take care of this. Andy and I are going to sit on the bench. And we're going to play, you know, words with friends I or mean, whatever people do now. To be on perfectly honest, the record would be a hell of a lot worse because the buy-in wouldn't be there. Like you, you need a buy-in. Right, but they'd, they'd be five hundred. I don't. Know. I think they'd be five hundred. I think LeBron I and AD running this team. You know, I guess sort of but, be but, like a movie but I don't, don't want to head coach. I, sure, but I but I also don't want to undercut the entire premise of what we were just. talking about. No, I just about. my like point it, is like the talent, the, the the floor. There is a floor built in. Yes, when you have that in there, right. Obviously, they'd be significantly worse with us. Right. Coaching. I mean, but that's the only point I'm making. Sure, I, I, the floor w- the floor would be worse, but the ceiling would also be way lower. And the ceiling Correct. the no ceiling question. matters a lot. I think you know, and I think what's what's Good for Vogel is we're actually going to get a chance to see how this works because they won out of the gate. Had they been slow, it would have been really problematic and we would have gotten more controversy. Now with an 11-2 and two start with a, what looks like they ought to finish this month with three or four losses, probably not much more than that. Gives them a nice cushion going into the harder portion of their schedule, uh, some flexibility if guys get hurt, whatever. We're going to actually see and let Frank Vogel coach and develop the kind of program and um, ethic that they want. And I will say, you go around that locker room and everybody uses the same language, next man up and, you know, pass first and extra pass team. Like they're all speaking the same language right now, which I think is really positive when you look at um, being able to weather that moment in the season when they do lose three of five or five of seven or whatever it is for whatever reason and not having that turn into, uh-oh, is Frank Vogel going to get fired? Because nobody wants that. No, no. It's just going to undercut everything they're trying to do this year. Uh, back to LeBron. Like We we talked about um, his buy-in and just the performance level that he's had and some of the stuff that they, that they need to perhaps fix. Um, this week's a big number that I want to point to, Andy – the difference in in efficiency when LeBron is on the floor versus off the floor, um, depending on which calculation you want to use, they're almost 15 points better uh, with LeBron, according to Basketball Reference and the on-off stats. The, you know the uh, cleaning glass, which is a slightly different formula, is about 20, which adds a little bit of defense in there. But offensively, um, almost 20 points better with LeBron uh, versus when he doesn't play. If there is a glaring problem with this team, other than, say, outside shooting, which I still think will eventually revert to the mean 
to where they'll just be ordinary as opposed to bad. Which is a little disappointing, but you can get by. It is, but ordinary versus bad makes right. a huge you difference can, with this offense. Get by. They are way too dependent on LeBron offensively. When he leaves the floor, they're they're bad. Right. And that, I mean, that's why you know I wrote a piece right after the Phoenix game, which was Rajon Rondo's return, about why despite all the faults that Rondo has as a player, which by the way, I think some of those on a team that actually is playing for something and Rondo knows like, okay, there, I have a culpability while I'm on the floor. He's not going to be, a, I think, a great defender, but I think he's going to be better than what we've seen the last yes, few more years. Engaged. He will be more engaged and invested. He'll be more sensitive to dribble, 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 right, exactly. assist hunting, And, and, we, and we've stuff. seen that so far. Yes, I disagree. They have needed Rondo back. Just for if for no other reason than they need a playmaker on this team consistently who isn't named LeBron or James. I mean, like it's really important. You know, we 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 had I in that piece that I wrote, um, LeBron. This was heading into that Phoenix game. LeBron's assist percentage was about fifty two percent, which meant that basically every other assist that took place while he was on while LeBron was on the floor was generated by LeBron. The next closest was Quinn Cook at like 20%. And then from there, it was a tie between Caruso and Davis at 15%. And that 52%, which I believe has dropped a little bit since, if that had been maintained, it would have been, according to my research, the highest assist percentage. I like how you threw it, according to my research. Well, because I, I just want to make sure. It's very scientific. It, well, if it, no, I mean more, if it turns out to be wrong, blame this on me, right. not, not somebody else. I'm sure I screwed it up. But it would be the highest assist percentage for a season since Russell Westbrook, the MVP season that he had, where basically he was OKC's offense, like in terms of scoring, in terms of generating it for other people. And when you consider where LeBron is in his career, as impressive as as that is, you have to ask questions about, is it sustainable? Is that even what you want? Yeah, and, and Mo Dackel, uh, was a great uh, former video guy, and uh, does some great work at Bleacher Report. I think and the Athletic does work. He has a podcast over here. Yeah, he's uh, so he's working doing a little work for us as well. He had a good column. Uh, this was at Bleacher last week about you know, where he was talking to scouts about the difference between LeBron last year and this year. And we talked about that engagement level and the buy-in. And again, is it related to the coaching staff? Maybe some. It's I think it's more related to this is my team now. We got something to play for. We can go to the finals. We got to make sure Anthony Davis is happy and wants to stay around because as much as Davis is in theory the focal point of the offense, LeBron has talked about making him. LeBron has been better than AD, I think, a little bit this year. Yes, he but, has. But AD is still in theory that the guy, so to speak, offensively. LeBron is still the the leader of the team and sets the tone for this team. And so his defense and the way he's been putting out on that, on that side of the ball has made a massive difference. And it's part of the reason that they are the number one defensive team in the league. And they've been better when LeBron is on the floor, off, uh, both defensively and, and, and offensively, uh, almost three points better with LeBron on the floor defensively too. So it's not just the one side. But the defense may not be sustainable if he's asked to do that much offensively. Frank Vogel can't claw back those two or three or four minutes that he's trying to get from LeBron. He will, though, by the way, try to round down the uh, amount yes. of minutes that he's playing in terms of that the way was it funny. was reported. It was very funny. Uh, before the Atlanta game, uh, Frank Vogel was asked about LeBron playing 40 minutes against Sacramento. And you know, would that affect his minutes against Atlanta, the, that game that night? 
to which Frank Vogel corrected the reporter that he only played 38 minutes and change. Like he, he kept just trying to round down right. the amount of time I mean, that LeBron he, had played. Some of those minutes he wasn't really worried. He really effectively, he played about nine minutes. <laughs> exactly. I mean, was, like, I bar- I, frankly, I barely even knew he you was know, If, if you mean, take into account timeouts and all these right. other things, LeBron actually was a DNPCD. Right. <laughs> like that's <laughs> I mean, street clothes. And, and everybody is conscious of this. It's going to be interesting to see if he can maintain this type of defensive effectiveness over the course of the entire year because of what it requires him to exert at, you know, nearly age 35 with that type of mileage. But if he can maintain just the intensity and the focus and the accountability that he's shown so far defensively, that really has set an entire tone for the whole team. Dwight, it was interesting after the game uh, against Atlanta, was asked about LeBron's defense. And he said something that I thought was interesting. I don't think he intended it to be this way, but it was a little bit of a Freudian, it may have been, I should say, a little bit of a Freudian slip. Um, He said, quote, he's been providing us with great offense, but on the defensive end, he's doing a lot better job of contesting, but also playing great one-on-one defense. We just have to keep that up as a team. We've got a great chance in front of us to do something really special this year. It sounds okay. Well, what did you find? The inference or implication. Oh, was that he? That he hadn't been doing that in the past, or at least recently. And it may or may not have been how Dwight meant it. It is, however, how I'm taking it, because I think it's the truth. Yeah. I mean, I'm just looking at this, like, you know, LeBron has played with some wonky supporting cast. So I think yes, we can all has. agree that inconsistent, this would be the highest offensive differential between he's when he's on the floor and in his career. We According to cleaning we thought glass, 2018 was if bad. I'm again, to pull an Andy Kamenetsky caveat on the, uh, on the uh, research, assuming I'm reading this correctly, and I might not be, because it's about math. Um, in his career, like it shouldn't be this. No, especially for a team that we, I know we thought heading into the season, the offense would be ahead of the defense, yeah. and, and there'd be more of a potential ceiling with just the personnel they had. Can they play the type of right. defense and Kuz- they need and to? Kuzma's starting to round back and forth yes. makes a big difference with that. Um, but they need, they need, they need more. A little, they do need more. I mean, they need this more is where the difference between particular. like that boogie versus Dwight thing, the Dwight thing has been spectacularly good. And like the, the center rotation has been really good. And, and Vogel kind of talks about them as one person, which I think is a really and interesting JaVale's way. picked it up of late. Yeah. And JaVale's been best. So like when, and JaVale said it on Friday, when Dwight's good, he can, you know, when I'm playing well, you know, maybe I get a little more run. And when we're both playing well, we win. And that's true. And I, I, you know, I think that's absolutely 100% true. Both of those guys are dialed in. The Lakers are almost impossible to beat. Yeah, and it also allows them to play what appears to be Frank Vogel's preferred look, which is big. He he prefers them to be big, all things being equal. If you can can compete in sort of the, the way the modern NBA works. Um, you know, with the right guys in the perimeter who, you know, you're not relying on switching at every position and doing, and, and, you know, you can hit enough outside shots and, and all that stuff. And Vogel to his credit has, has, re- has changed how he plays offensively in terms of embracing three pointers and being more analytically driven and all that. He still wants a defense in which the bigs are by the basket and, um, guards can aggressively close and play without having to switch a lot and try to force mid range shots. And that's obviously analytically based too, but. He's not one of these switch everything guys, and which we thought might be coming in more. The difference between Dwight and 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 Boogie obviously is you would have a better offense with LeBron off the floor 
than you do with Dwight. Right, just because DeMarcus is a playmaker. I mean, I thought he would be their second unit hub where you would really run everything through him. It was a reason that I actually thought before he got hurt that maybe Rondo wouldn't be a necessity. You know, like you wouldn't necessarily need a true playmaking ball handling guard in that second unit because you had DeMarcus out there and you had Kyle Kuzma as a scoring focal point. And Kuzma has also talked about wanting to become more of a playmaker anyway. So right. and it just, were that successful? Th- this is, you know, the, the roster is not perfectly constructed. It's better than it was last year. And it makes more sense than it did last year. But it's still got some things where you go, mm, this is. And so like the parts that aren't working as well, where like, you know, save Danny Green is pretty doing Danny Green stuff, except for that dunk. That lab. was unbelievable. Danny Green. Literally nobody on the team knew he could do that. No, including Danny Green. Yeah. I mean, like Danny Green, before the we're referencing this monster putback dunk that he had, one-handed flying out of nowhere, way, way up. Right, which is which, by the way, was a way more impressive. I mean, I know everybody made a huge deal out of LeBron's monster dunk on Friday over uh, Belicia, which was really good. I but mean, it's LeBron. But we it's LeBron, LeBron James to do this stuff. And he destroyed Belicia. Belicia was like, I'm going to take – no, I'm not. I mean, it was like no, it was not much of a contest there. Like Danny Green got up on a putback with like, and it's Danny Green. I looked it up according to Basketball Reference. Before that dunk, Danny Green had dunked forty-seven times over ten and change seasons. That's not a lot. No, that's that's like four dunks a season. That's not much. No, it's like one dunk every twenty. Like if you're games. a guy who and he's six. Danny Green's six five. Give I think he's taller. Six five, six six. So he's like he's a guy who can dunk a basketball. Right. I mean, but that's not what he does. Much less do it. And like I bet. That. I bet the number of putback dunks low. That might be. I, if he has ten in his career, I'd be shocked. Yeah, it, it was a pretty amazing moment. But you were saying like Danny Green doing Danny Green stuff, which is hitting outside shots. Right. Everybody else is below their career norms, and that's why I feel like they'll they'll be okay there. Um, but you know, there aren't enough. They're, they're short a wing. You know, this is something that that we'll get into a lot over the course of the year with the buyout, potential buyout of Andre Iguodala or a trade or whatever it might be. Like they need another wing. Um, they need another ball handler. Even with Rondo healthy, they need another guy. Um, so there are some places that the roster needs to be improved. But again, when you start with those two guys, and before we get off this thing with LeBron and get into uh, Ak, Aska Kamenetsky, can we just stop and marvel at not just the vision that LeBron has, but the accuracy? Like the play he made last night um, where he's coming over the screen and I forget, I forget who he hit in the corner, but like this was, this traveled around Twitter. Um, like he's passing back across his body through like four players from the top of the arc on the right side into the left corner. And the shooter has his hands out ready to receive the ball and it didn't move them on a 35 foot pass moving the wrong way across his body. Every pass he makes is like that. The 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 guy catch it whether it's a bounce pass, whatever kind of pass, the, the receiver of the pass never has to move his hands. It's remarkable. Yeah, you know LeBron is. You were saying like you know moving the wrong way, and I and I know what you mean. And technically, he was moving. the He was wrong just way. moving. He wasn't. It was not like incorrect, but it, it is a harder pass to right. make that, when you're no, no, like opposite body. body. Right. That's what you're talking the direction about. Direction like, from I'm, you can't. I'm right. Not, I'm not calling him out. No, like, no, no. I, I know exactly. I knew yeah. exactly what you meant. Um, 
LeBron is, I think, for all in, I think me for, calling out LeBron. <laughs> I think for all intents and purposes, LeBron is ambidextrous, which means oh, sure. which means for him, there may be kind of no such thing as the wrong way. You know what I mean? Like, like he's ambidextrous, not just in which hand he can use, but, but in which direction he. That's can what use. I'm saying. Like, like in terms of like moving opposite body, or you know, like off, you know, quote the wrong foot. He's which isn't like direction. That, but that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, for somebody like LeBron, who you know, he does a lot of different things with different hands. Like, you know, I think he'll write with the opposite hand that he shoots. Like all the, sorts of different stuff. Does like, he? I think he does. I th- so I, he writes. I think left-handed. I think he does. I'm they not do a- say left-handed people are more creative than right-handed people. I, I well, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Um, I do think, and I may be wrong, but I think LeBron writes left-handed. I oh. may be incorrect about that. Um, apologies probably, if I am. You know what? He probably could. He probably could. Um, but anyway, yeah. But like, he's just. It, it is. It, I, I just wanted to point that out. That it is. It's sort of like you would stop every once in a while and just be like, look at what Kobe's doing with his feet. It's not just that he's scoring 35 points a game or whatever it might be. It's that he's also doing it in this way with this sort of technical beauty to it. And there's I am a- correct. LeBron writes left-handed. I'm there looking you at a picture of him right now signing a basketball. He's doing it left-handed. Unless he's just showing, showing off, off, that's the way he does it. Um, so I, I, I just I, I wanted that to be – it's not just that he's leading the league in assists. It's that – even on a team that can't shoot, you certainly can't blame him for like not getting. And this is the NBA, and you went, but like, watch how other guys make passes. Like, a guy has to reach over to the left half minute, half a foot, or whatever it is, or they bend down three inches before they run. All that stuff matters. And look, I mean, you can't ask for something better than. No, it's uh, it's pretty practice. amazing. It's right. pretty amazing to see on a day to day basis. And you know who wears sneakers on a daily basis? LeBron James. You ever wonder how to get the hottest, newest sneakers, the ones that barely hit the shelves? The answer is StockX, a revolutionary new marketplace for buying and selling 100% authentic sneakers, streetwear, watches, and handbags. Millions are already using StockX to find everything after it sells out, from the latest Yeezys to every retro Jordan to the hottest new streetwear from brands like Supreme, Bape, Palace, and Kith. And StockX also allows users to buy and sell pre-owned excellent condition luxury handbags and watches from brands like Louis Vuitton, Chanel, Gucci, Rolex, Omega Tudor, and more. Bet LeBron James has a few of those items as well. So you want in on all the action? Check out StockX.com backslash b-ball for a surprise offer that won't be around long. That's StockX.com backslash b-ball. Check it out today. No question. Uh, time now for a segment that we love on the Magic Hour podcast, Ask Kamenetsky, which we call ACK because it's an acronym. Um, and where you send us your questions via Twitter and we answer them Twitter feed at cam brothers and we answer your questions here. Uh, we also have a mailbag coming up this week. We'll answer more of your questions, but the first question gets into some of the stuff uh, that's been going on. It's been a big week talking about KCP this from Eagles Lakers at CJB 33 have Lakers fans been too hard on KCP Andy to a certain degree. Yes. I mean, because, and this is something Frank Vogel and his teammates have talked about a lot. KCP's effort and attention and in a lot of places, effectiveness defensively has been very consistent this year. I mean, it got off to a rough start because in the opening game against the Clippers, KCP got the assignment of Kawhi Leonard, which is difficult for anybody, much less a guy like KCP, who's just too small. Like KCP cannot. No, he can't. You cannot be expect. He cannot be right. expected to guard. But, but like Leonard. that was a game where KCP was like oh for a billion, and Kawhi Leonard was roasting him. Which again, 
is what you'd expect because he's Kawhi Leonard and KCP is overmatched anyway. That really set a narrative for this year that KCP wasn't contributing anything. I think with KCP- We talked about that last week, how like- it, you know, the first like two games a team plays in a season, people just watch those and that's it for the storyline for the rest of the year. The thing with KCP though, that makes it where it becomes easy for Laker fans to really just get on him is, you know, the clutch stuff, you know, the, that he is the beneficiary of the association with clutch sports and LeBron and Rich Paul. You know, I mean, the price point keeps going down. Which is nice. Yeah. I mean, by the time he and Bronny are teammates, uh, he'll, <laughs> he'll be playing on a league minimum. But like that plays into it. Just the fact that he is only on this team. Or it's certainly that's the perception. Right. The perception that he is only on this team because of the association with Clutch and the perception that Clutch and LeBron have too much power with the Lakers anyway. Also too, and I've written about this a lot, KCP is one of the most maddeningly erratic, streaky players I've ever seen. Like you never, you never have a game where you're like, how'd KCP play? He's all right. Yeah, he's fine. That never happens. And it's not only that, like the aesthetics of him being that inconsistent are insane. Like everything is, is turned up to like 14, first of all, like there's, there's no subtlety in what his turnovers are like, what the F man? (laughs) The spectacular players are spectacular. The terrible players are like the wedgie that he got on the layup. The other, like there's, 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 it's all extremes. And so when it works, it's like, oh my God, KCP scored 73 points in a quarter. Like that's, or it's like, oh my God, KCP had 73 turnovers in a quarter. Like there's no. And they're all again, like what the right. F and just, it's turnovers. Just, I mean, the, you know, the, the words that, you know, a lot of words that you're really not supposed to use, like the ball's just flying around. He's flying around. Like the, it's just, there's no chill in his game um, at all. Uh, and so when he is bad, it looks even worse than if like a guy just like, you know, little bad pass, you know, travels, you know, certain guys make a mistake. You can just hand the ball to the referee and, and like, it just doesn't work that well, way. It's, it's like a, it's a different version of, because KCP again, and, and this has been this way since he arrived as a Laker, his effort is always there. The guy plays extremely hard, but I used to joke when he was on the Lakers that Vladimir Rodmanovich you know how certain players are talked about? They bring the intangibles. You know, like the, right. there are guys, they do the stuff that doesn't show up in the stat sheet, the intangibles. It's Dwight this year, in a lot of ways, you're actually talking about KCP and some of the, the closing out, getting through screens, whatever it might be. Vlad Rodmanovich was, I said, the most tangible player in the league. Yes. Like he was a guy that you could just look at the box score and know if he had a good game or a bad game. Yep. Because basically, if the shots weren't falling, he had a bad, bad game. game. Because Vlad Rodmanovich brought nothing And also, else. not a guy who you could accuse of play like you could say like KCP you're going you're going at 130%. You need to turn it down. I need you I I know it's not your nature. I need you to dial it back. Nobody ever said that to Vlad Rodmanovich. Right. But it's like it's one of those things where it just it feels in some ways worse than it is. And you know, again, KCP is really streaky and he can be an infuriating player to watch. Mm-hmm. Have fans been too hard on him? Probably. Yeah. I mean, especially you know, even beyond the we as sports observers forget these are like human beings. <laughs> like, we're just too mean to these people, I think, sometimes generally. You know, talk about them like they're like they're human trash and garbage and all that, all because like we want our team to win. But yeah, it's like or sometimes even just our fantasy team to win. Like not even our actual team. <laughs> like we want no, our the players fantasy team. who are on my fantasy team when they don't perform are human garbage. 
But that's that is the 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 price you pay for the opportunity at glory that comes <laughs> from being on my fantasy team. Because yeah. if I win, we all true. win, Andy. That's true. Uh, but everybody else, I mean, that's not very many people. I mean, basketball, it's like fifteen guys. Football, you know, twenty four if you can, twenty five if you can buy like both teams. It's not that. There's still a lot of guys who aren't, and we shouldn't talk about them that way. Um, and only I, by the way, can call them human garbage. You can't. Right. They're exactly. not on your team. They're on my team. All right. Next one is from Max Power at underscore 1 a.m. 5 a.m. underscore. As parents living in L.A., do you raise your kids as Dodger fans or Cardinals fans? So, uh, for people who don't know, Brian and I were raised in St. Louis. All right. Now, this this gets to a broader question of parenting generally and how much control you have over what it is your children like. Um, my kids know that I want the Cardinals to win. And we, and I, th- I think I've raised them to try to like the Cardinals. Uh, the, the correct answer to this question is my kids do not give a bleep about baseball. Really? <laughs> they just don't care. They're like my, my parent, my kids are the problem that baseball seems to be facing demographically that they just don't care. My, my middle one has, uh, my middle son, my my youngest son has been to it is, is a Dodger fan in the sense that he likes the Dodgers. We've never been to a game. He's never asked to go to a game. He doesn't play baseball. He doesn't want to play baseball. My oldest son played two seasons of baseball and then quit basically because the third season he would have had to move to a league where his friends from school weren't on the team. He's like, eh, don't want to play. So he liked being on the team with his friends. He didn't care about baseball. He couldn't name two players. On the Dodgers. I'm not sure you could name one. He might be able to come up with like Clayton Kershaw. That's it. They don't care. Um, But more broadly, like they, my oldest one doesn't have any real team affiliations. My other, my other one just likes Los Angeles teams. And so they were excited when the blues won the cup because I was excited and all that, but they don't really care about that. They, they want the Los Angeles teams to win. So you can try. But they're going to like what they like. Yeah, it, it's interesting. In our household, uh, because my wife is really into sports, um, she's from Texas, but she's adopted a few of the LA teams. You mentioned the, the Dodgers, and for example, in Max Power, that's where the question came from. My daughter is a Dodger fan, and re- or really says she is because she knows my wife is a big Dodger fan. And she knows that I grew up rooting for the Cardinals, but I don't follow them now. Like I, you know, I'm not religiously keeping up. Right, with what's so going you're failing as a parent in sure. that regard. Well, but also, like you know, she. I'm also recognizing like she doesn't need to follow and root for a St. Louis team first over the team that actually is in the city that you know she was born in and thus far raised in. But what's funny about her is she says she's a Dodger fan. And she knows like five or six players on the team. She does not actually watch baseball. No. She's just, she's just sort of a fan of the Dodgers as a concept and has a few friends that I think do actually follow the Dodgers. So sort of through osmosis, she roots th- uh, through them and like sort of through osmosis roots for them with my wife. But she doesn't really watch baseball. But then like the rest of the teams that have been sort of she's adopted towards really have to do with a combination of who we root for, either me or my wife, and then proximity. Like, for example, she is a Dallas Cowboys fan, basically she says, because that's- That's my, mom's team. That's mom's team, and I'm an NFL orphan. I don't really have a team. So that- I Right, have, I mean, again, it's a failure for you as a parent that you're allowing your daughter to be a Cowboys fan. Look, 
I knew what I got but into. You, but you, but you, you admit like this is a that is a failure. Like this was a compromise. Frankly, I your made daughter I, is less of a, is a less good person because she's going to grow up. She's still going to be like. But this was a good. This was a compromise that I made when I married a cowboy fan because, as you recall, this was something that I really had to wrap my head around. No, be- I no, I understand. I was, I was, I was grew up you, really hating the cowboys. You, your daughter, her. We talked about ceiling before. Her ceiling is lower because of this. Sure. Um, but you know, th- this was, she is an, a cowboy fan because of mommy and again, you know, proximity and she doesn't really have anything to compete with locally because there's no real connection for her with the Rams. Right, you haven't taken her to games. You right. Done that However, college football, she says at least she never watches any of these sports in reality. She doesn't really like watching sports at all, but she is a USC fan because that's where I went. And that is closer to Texas A&M where her mom went, but she doesn't really understand what that is. So she roots for USC and then NBA, she is a Laker fan. What's the M? Agriculture and mechanical uh, or something? I don't know. Uh, something like that. Yeah. Um, but she is a uh, a Laker fan because she knows that daddy loves the Lakers. She knows that daddy's work is the Lakers. So she just sort of, a, that's what she's gravitated towards. But see, like my kids, again, my oldest. As opposed to the Spurs, oldest, which is mommy's team. My oldest doesn't know teams, doesn't know players. Like he goes, he plays, he's a big soccer player. That's his sport. And like every time you go to soccer camp, the, the, the icebreaker question is, you know, who's your favorite team? Who's your favorite player? And he's just like, I got nothing. Like I think now he's memorized a couple just so he can answer the question uh, without looking weird. He's like, uh, Ronaldo, Spain. And you just, it's, it's enough of an answer. It gets him off the hook. Um, my middle one though, like he likes the teams he likes. We got, he has a t-shirt for like basically every LA team. He's a bigger Clipper fan than he is a Laker fan. You know why he's been to two Clipper games. I can't take him to Laker games. I'm working during Laker games. I can get him into Clipper games, which by the way are way less expensive. Uh, so there is that. And without even this. Particularly if you use game time. The other, the other thing is like he's an LAFC fan. Why? Because we've been to LAFC games. And so it, to some degree, it's just based on what can you take your kids to. Uh, but ultimately, you whether you're talking about Max Power raising your kids as a fan of a specific team or to like the music that you like, um, you can try and you can, you can do what you can. You can play the music. You can take them to the teams or whatever. Ultimately, your, their friends are going to have more influence on it. You know, context is going to have more influence on it. And you can only do so much. All right, to wrap up ACK, final question of the day comes from Dexter Cumberbatch uh, at Dexter C73. The best bad movie? This is an interesting question because there's a difference between a bad movie that you enjoy despite the fact that you know this is pretty much crap on every level versus something that's big, dumb, fun, but not necessarily a bad movie. Like in some ways, because it sort of could, it kind of succeeds at what it's trying to do. It succeeds in what it's trying to do, or you know, it's not incompetent. It's just kind of dumb. It's a dumb movie, but it's not perhaps incompetent. with a plot hole or two. Right, there's plot hole or two. The acting can be either a little stiff or a little broad, or you know, like there's plot holes, whatever. But it's not incompetent. You know, it might be far fetched. It might be kind of ridiculous. Like okay, Roadhouse, which is one of my favorite. You know, of of this genre. And kind of, I, right, it's kind of a, it's, it is yes. a Mount Rushmore when people yes, and talk it, and, about it. And this. in the last like 15 to 20 years, Roadhouse has regained this new appreciation as opposed to when it came out. 
and was neither critically acclaimed or audiencely acclaimed. (laughs) (laughs) But Roadhouse, I mean, Roadhouse is ridiculous, but there are elements of Roadhouse that you look at and go, all right, you know what? That's actually not bad. Like Ben Gazzara as the villain is giving an awesome villain performance. Like Sam Elliott, Patrick Swayze, God bless them, are 100% committed to what they're doing. And the setup is basically a Western. I mean, it's basically just a Western where, you know, the man with no name comes in to clean up, you know, the town. Just in this case, it's a bar. (laughs) Right. And it is a weird subculture where like, there's no law in these towns. Yes. But there are bouncers. Right. Exactly. It's, well, it's a little weird. It's it's a little weird, but it, in its own right, kind of creative. It's an, it's an interesting kind of creative spin. I don't know if Roadhouse is really that bad. You know what I mean? Like it's, well, it's, it's not great. I it, love it. It's, it's a, it's a bad movie, but it's, it's a bad, but it may be, clo- it's a bad, it's, but it may be closer to big, dumb fun yeah. than truly bad. Like for example, my showgirls, is I think on both of ours list. Yes. Showgirls is a straight up terrible movie. It is. It's now entertaining in retrospect in a lot of ways for all the wrong and reasons. Not, and honestly, not even just the in- incredible amounts of gratuitous nudity. Right, sure. Like, which at the, at the time was the draw. Right. <laughs> there's, there's no question. But it, it is now considered this unintentionally hilarious fun watch. The scene of Elizabeth Berkeley. When she's having sex in the pool with, was it Kyle McLaughlin? Yes. Um, is laughably yes. entertaining. Oh, no. She, lo- she looks like she's having a seizure. It's it's so, nobody has ever had sex like that. But there's, there's a scene where she's just putting ketchup like on her fries and she's just yeah. viciously, viciously I mean, shaking just, I mean, bottle. just the line, I'm a dancer, not a whore. Right. I mean, like, that is a legit Bad it's great for, it can be used for movie. everything. So, like, you know, there's there's a difference between like I, I think I saw on your list, you had The Rock on your list. I don't the consider rock, the, the I don't rock consider The Rock a bad movie at Con all. On air. They're they're kind of they're kind of the same movie. <laughs> it's like they they're good at the same things and bad at the same things. If you find kind of one ridiculous, they're both kind of ridiculous. Both, I think, far more qualify as big dumb fun. If you really want to sit there and you want to break down the rock. You can find a hole or two, but but at that point though, it that's you're, really you're doing just, it wrong. But I was going to say you're basically taking apart action movies because most action movies right, but don't but that stand in particular, screen. right? I mean, so I'm just sort of making lists like, but then I also have on my list Battlefield Earth, but that's just bad, bad. It's, it's not even it, funny, bad. But, no, but certain th- if if you, I, I saw it's fascinating. I went back bad. and I watched clips of it, and I, again, is it good? No, it's fascinating though. It like, is. You sit there and you and you and you spend most of your time going. I mean. Intellectually, you understand how this was made. You know the the John Travolta Scientology thing. It's like there's money to make this movie. I get it, but you still are going. I don't understand how this became. Like how somebody. I think I think at the time you you're better at this sort of history than I. I don't think people were necessarily surprised that it didn't do well, except maybe them. 
Like, did people did they think this? I mean, was it was a, a studio game? movie, and it was expensive. I, I, it was really expensive, and again, a studio movie. But you understand how well, it's I mean, made look, because of the power but that. The, but the base, though, in terms of the Scientology base that they obviously were looking to attract, that that is a large base. That book, uh, Battlefield yeah, Earth, was very successful. And, is, we, Ron and on it, I mean, again, without getting too deep into the just sort of the the Scientology angle of it and all that, but like. John Travolta is like a like a seven foot tall dreadlock. <laughs> really, how tall? <laughs> He's like, like nine, like nine or tall. ten feet tall. Like, it's like a dreadlock, nine foot tall alien. alien. Yeah, is a. I mean, it's an ambitious choice. He that movie, like the, the 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 way that they talk, I mean, like everything about that movie is like okay, I'll, they're they're going for it. I've said for like the last twenty years because the movie is about twenty years old. I think Battlefield Earth may be the worst legitimate movie ever made like like a studio film that had actual backing and you know you had money right. behind it and you had like people who were experienced and you weren't making something on like a seven hundred thousand dollar budget no with people makes, who never done it, it before water world look like the god no it, it, yeah it, it is shockingly it's incompetent. it's 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 incredible it, it it's just and, and so you watch it and i went back and i looked it's at some fascinating clips. it's fascinating it's not Good. It's, no, it's not good at all. It's not a good bad movie. I don't even know if it's enjoyable. It's definitely fascinating. I will tell you, see. it's enjoyable in like four minute YouTube clips. Yeah, that's probably, again on a fascination that was, the, level. It was That was the really the way it was meant to probably. be. Probably. <laughs> um, like digested over years. Here are some of the movies I have, Brian, on my list as far as just favorite. And bad then I'll get movies. to my, my, my choice and you can tell me if, I'm, if, I, if I have it in the wrong Favorite category. like bad movies that, you know, these are just not good movies that I just love anyway, but they're. they're they're not really in any way. Well, real so. quick, before you get in your list, the distinction, like I had the time I, my go-to sort of quote unquote bad movie that I think is actually too good to be on this list is The Fifth Element. Yeah, it's a, too good. It's a ridiculous movie. But it's not bad. But it's not bad. It's absurd. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It takes some liberties and all that kind of stuff. But it's too, that, that qualifies. Yeah, it's, you were too well, it's, it's too well It's done. actually too good. It's, it's kind actually, of fun. Yeah, it's I like too it. good of it's a movie. It's not a good movie, but it's too but good it's to too good. Right. Here are the movies I have on my list. Okay. Uh, the Room, obviously, which was so bad it became a cult legend and became an actual, but the actual disaster mo- artist. The, the movie itself is kind of unwatchable. It's hilarious, though. It's hilarious. With the right con- – especially with today's context. And if you're – well, just if you're watching it with people. But, I mean, it's hilarious. Right, but it's, it's – it's, if you're watching it by yourself and, like, you didn't know, it's terrible. Right. It's unwatchable. You turn it off after 10 Yeah, minutes. that's how it became a cult favorite, ultimately. Right. The Principal with Jim Belushi and Lou Gossett Jr. That's a bad movie. That is a terrible movie, movie that I love. That's a bad movie. I will watch that every single time it comes on. It is, <laughs> like, it's in a lot of ways unjustifiable. I love it. Mommy Dearest. On my list. Mommy Dearest is on my list. It is a, I, but again, I can't tell if that is, it's a bad movie. It's really It's a bad. really bad movie. I mean, I love that you movie. Might, you might say Faye Dunaway is so good that she could rescue it from it's, pure bad. It is such an over-the-top performance. It's just a scene-chewing performance. But, it, you know, it, it is, it also has a special place in our hearts because when you and I as youths uh, would feel that our mother was being unreasonable with us, we would just look at her and say, no wire hangers ever, which we found funny, and she didn't. <laughs> uh, the Man with One Red Shoe. The That's a bad Tom, movie. <laughs> Tom Hanks. Really Amazing cast. It's yes, a great bad cast. Movie. It is incompetent. It a bad I movie. love it. Escape Plan with Sylvester Stallone, Arnold, and 50 that. Cent. Oh, I haven't seen that. Oh, they're, in, they're inside this uh, impregnable prison uh that uh stallone was 
hired to design this prison. Like he, he's an expert in creating prisons that can't be escaped. And he's brought into this prison to show that he can escape. But it turns out they put him in there so he couldn't escape and therefore keep him away from a larger plan that was being hatched. He's inside with Arnold and the two of them figure um, a way to get out of this prison. 50 Cent is in there as a uh, computer hacker. And you know that he's a computer hacker and smart because he has glasses. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, Escape plan is wonderful. Uh, Karate Kid Three. That's a bad movie. And but it is hilarious. It's so bad. Uh, Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man. Been, I I don't remember. Ooh, Mickey Rourke, Don I really Johnson. Just don't remember. Ooh, that is some bad. But like, is it good? It's not intentionally. Bad, no, that's but that's that's not intentionally good. It, it is Harley funny. Davidson and the Marlboro Man is it, it pops on. In your in I'll nine minutes, you're not watching. You're not doing. The, you're not giving that the next two hours on TNT. You may not. <laughs> you are not doing that. I might. You are not doing that. I, I do not believe you. I'm. I, I'm. I, I believe that you will watch. You know Escape me and Mickey Plan. Rourke. No, it's true. I will watch pretty much anything Mickey Rourke's in. That's true. All right, you flipped me. Yeah. Um, it's not a good movie, but goddamn, do I love it. Saint Elmo's Fire. Also on my list. Basically, all of those movies. They're kind of like they're Saint Elmo's Fire is the worst. Well, because Saint Elmo's Fire is very serious in what it's doing, and all of their problems are all self-created. Yes, <laughs> and, and not so, and it's and so not over particularly the, and, difficult to solve. Other than maybe like Demi Moore's character Jules clearly has a bad substance abuse problem, right? But like in everything from the sh- it is so so incredibly period yeah like it is it is a movie that cannot exist in any other era weekend at bernie's bad but i love yeah i I not only have watched uh will watch anytime it comes on recently did watch it when it just came on uh that's my list okay um i agree with a lot of those i I had mommy dearest on mine um i i will go with showgirls if we we feel like my favorite of these movies is too good because I always say Deep Blue Sea. I think that's too good. You think it's too good? Yeah. Because that's, it's, that's it's, the epitome of deep, uh, big, dumb fun. It is big, dumb fun. I think that's the epitome but it's of ridi- it. It is re- but it's well wildly made. successful, I think, at what it's trying to do. It's well made. For- it gets put on, like, if you Google, like, I know. best bad movies, like, it gets but, put but on But I think people, though, don't often make that distinction between big, dumb fun and- And an actual bad- Like, this is badly made. Like, look, Sam Jackson's speech- in deep blue it's sea just is so itself. great. I th- this it's a great this category is a great referendum on how you go to watch movies. Like the, the classic story I use is when the original Batman came out uh, with Nicholson and Michael and Keaton. Michael Keaton and whatever, and we went inside. My friend Jason said he didn't like it because it wasn't realistic. It's Batman, you asshole! <laughs> it's not going to be realistic. It's Batman. Uh, but anyway, so like that's, that gets put in there a lot. And if it qualifies in this category, then Deep Blue Sea is the best one of these movies ever made. And I don't think it's close. I love it. Deep Blue Sea is phenomenal. Deep Blue I, sea I is think fantastic. it's too good. I actually think it's too good for this. I, it's I, possible. I really do think there is a It's dis- too successful at what it does. I just think there's a distinction between bad movie, like so bad it's great, or you know, bad but I inexplicably love it. Like the principle, it really is not great on any level. But I love it. I love it even though I know it's bad. Yeah, then I'll go with Showgirls. Showgirls is pretty good. Showgirls is horribly made, plotted, and everything on it, horribly acted on everything. If it was 15% better, it would be completely unwatchable. Yes, 100%. It's just bad enough to be really entertaining. Right. Um, all right, then I'll go with Showgirls. Um, all right, so that that it for tonight? I think that is. Um, we will be back next week. 
We will try to, we're trying to do guests. We'll try to get some good interviews over the course of the season. All right, see everybody next time. 